it is it's part of our um, human condition, right, to be able to get out there and, and celebrate and to have sorrow. There's all of these life experiences that we have in our hospitality scene. So for me, there's there's a real optimism on the other side, and, and I believe I believe in the in the inner sort of resilience and genius within our industry. I truly believe that we can have some fantastic trading conditions. It is a year since Australian restaurants closed in an absolutely, I'm going to use that word, in an unprecedented situation when the pandemic really landed on us and really things are, are never going to be the same. We are talking today to somebody who knows the hospitality industry inside and out. His name is Ivan Brewer. He's a hospitality profitability expert based in Townsville, Queensland. And I know he is going to share so many interesting insights and practical tips today. Ivan, welcome to Dirty Linen. That's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today, Danny. What a year, hey? Um, I would love you to look back on the year that was and talk about some of the things that you've seen. And, you know, we've, we've heard about this period so many times as it, an absolute line in the sand. Things, things have changed a lot. What, what has changed and what has remained the same? I've I've tried to maintain a bit of an upbeat perspective as well, to be honest, because I think we are a very resilient industry. You know, we restaurants per se were born um, due to the French Revolution. You know, that's when we first saw a la carte restaurants and menus be um, come into existence, and we've been around for as you know as long as people have been around in the hospitality industry. So um, it has been devastating. It has been incredibly difficult, but I, I do truly believe in the resilience of our industry because we are a very resilient bunch. Um, some of the things that I've sort of seen on the on the more positive note is just this flexibility. Um, and I know that you you said unprecedented and I'm and I I'm sorry I have to one up you and I have to say the word pivot um, is the only <laughs> word that's been used more than unprecedented. Yep, um, could be there, right. Yeah. There has been this very rapid change in direction. Um, within the hospitality industry. And we haven't always been that way. You know, we are an industry that tends to like to set and forget. That's how we do things and just move forward. So um, that ability to change direction very rapidly, which has just been absolutely essential, there's been no choice, um, has been really important, I think, and something that if we can um, absorb that and, and have that action to our DNA going forward can actually just help us in, in the future where, you know, we, I think, realistically can expect that times will be far less predictable than they have been before. I mean, how do you sort of balance out that the really strong drive in our community for things to, you know, quote, unquote, get back to normal and this ability to work differently, think differently, act differently that we've all seen. I mean, people do want things to, in so many ways, you know, be like they were, but of course this also is an amazing opportunity to change. How do you think that all balances out? I think there's there, it's been an interesting sort of looking over the history of the pandemic and how different it has been in different locations. Um, I think being sort of Queensland orientated, but as well as I have some very close associations nationally, um, there's been very little impact up here. So the, the want to go back has been almost immediate. There's been very bumpy in Sydney and Melbourne as examples. So the, the initially the intent to just return to normal has been interrupted over and over again, which makes it just more and more difficult. So I think that it's, it's look, there, Unfortunately, there is a, a strong expectation that a large number of businesses 
um, and through no fault of their own, won't survive on the other side of the pandemic. That's um, that is really difficult. And I think the the CBD areas in particular are finding it incredibly challenging. I, I also see in other areas. Uh, you know, good operations in other regions expanding rapidly. I've I've also never seen um, one site go to three or three sites go to five as rapidly and consistently as I have over the last sort of six months as well. So it's it's this really interesting dynamic that just isn't a one size fits all, is it? It's, it's just so varied, um, and you know, unfortunately, lots of pain, but also lots of optimism and opportunity as well. Yeah, I think definitely the impacts of the pandemic haven't been shared equally. There's so much variation in the way that, that you know, everything's shaken down. Um, we are, you know, we, we're on the edge of what a lot of people are thinking of as some sort of cliff, a bit of a precipice with the end of JobKeeper. What do you think's in store for the industry? I'd have to agree. Um, I think there's sort of two sides to it at the moment. And when we know that we have about 10,000 roles that can't be filled within hospitality, and that's just for restaurant managers and chefs advertised on Seek, just an incredibly large number. And it goes to show just how important um, the overseas, uh, you know, chefs and managers and such and workers have been to our industry for quite a long time. And we need to remember we've expanded very rapidly over the last 10 years. So we've gone from 14 to 42 plus thousand cafes, restaurants and bars in just 10 years, but our total market has hardly increased. So there's much more pressure um, than there has been in the past. And and unfortunately, I think with that, that and you could, you know, inverted commas, call it saturation, um, I, I think there could be as many as 10,000 businesses that won't be viable um, by the end of the financial year. I mean, that is a lot. So... It- what do you think, I mean, we've talked about this staff shortage, but then there's a sort of business oversupply. I mean, do you think it's going to even out? I think, yeah, I think um, with fewer operations and operators there, there will be um, more staff to fill those holes. I do also believe, and it's something for, you know, people that I've been working with and talking to, that if we can just hold on that 12 and 18 months, I think we could be seeing some of the most profitable and some of the most exciting um, trading conditions in hospitality that we've seen for the last 20 years. So if, if we can just get through and survive and, and be fleet of foot, and something that I've seen as a real positive, you know, I've known of inner city cafes and restaurants that have halved their um, amount of staffing hours within a week, but being able to achieve the same service outcomes, being able to achieve and meet the same revenue. So our efficiency dividend has increased dramatically. And we've not typically been an industry that's very on the front foot of being hyper productive because we, we use very broad terms like good service. But what does good service mean? You know, it's, it's not one point. It's It can be anything within a very long um, range. So we've become more nuanced in how it is it going to meet what we are promising and looking to deliver in terms of value to our customers. So I think there's, there's two sides to it. One, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of pain, but I really truly believe that we can see some of the best conditions we've seen in a long term on the other side of this. What, why do you have that optimism? What do you think is going to be so good about the future? Well, if we're looking at 25% less businesses um, in the industry, we've seen some, it's not across the board, but generally I've seen some incredibly proactive landlords as well that are really sharing the success journey so that they're seeing that their success comes on the back of the success of their operators, which, as you know, is not, that's not been the case typically. We're still, we've still got a really that overhang of, 
um, the 2008, you know, boom that we had in, in the industry before we went into the previous um, GFC. Well, and we've still been getting that sort of hyperinflated um, rental costs, which I think is one of the main sort of issues that can, that causes um, a lack of profitability and hence closures. So something I've always used with operators is that our yearly rent should be less than our monthly revenue as a rule of thumb, right? So if you can't do that, if you're in double digits with your rent, it's very difficult to, to be successful. So I think, you know, potential of um, decreased costs coming into the market, an awful lot more, um, you know, talent has to be stretched and shared a little bit less, less competitors that are existing in the marketplace, a huge pent up demand. I think we all want to get back out to restaurants. We want to be able to share in the, the beautiful, it is, it's part of our um, human condition, right? To be able to get out there and, and celebrate and to have sorrow. There's all of these life experiences that we have in our hospitality scene. So. For me, there's there's a real optimism on the other side, and, and potentially there could be a little less entry, a rate of entry for businesses as well. If we have a lot of businesses that are failing, a lot of businesses that default some loans and such, it might be a little bit harder to get finance and open up and go in if you're if you're a green skin going into the industry. So, for me, I, I, I when I and I believe I believe in the in the inner sort of resilience and genius within our industry. I truly believe that we can have some fantastic trading conditions. So, what are some of the other levers that business owners can pull to uh, to be profitable and when, and really not just profitable but more profitable? Because we know that the margins, even if restaurants have been running, you know, running at a profit, those margins are still incredibly slim. What can people do, like specifically, to do better? So something that we are, we're, we're very much an industry based on scale. So larger businesses are much, much more forgiving. You know, so a larger turnover, sort of thirty grand a week. Um, or more hide, hide, can hide a lot of sins, shall we say. So smaller operators it might even be a 10% net profit, which is, would be very high, but the number, the actual amount of profit is quite small. Um, so for me, there are things that we haven't typically looked at within hospitality. So things like a stock take, Danny. I mean, it's like pulling teeth, right? Like to, for me to be able to encourage or actually get anybody to actually do a stock take, it's just almost impossible. And these are just essential skills that we have to have. So we need to do stock takes because we can't rely on our point of sale system to tell us what our cost of goods are. Um, something as well is that we don't measure as part of our cost of goods the value of our inventory. So we tend to have a lot of inventory sitting around. Uh, so how frequently should we turn that inventory over? So looking at something in a very different way, it's just money sitting on a shelf. So we really want to be efficient in how it is that we use that money. Um, and then productivity for me. So really much, I, I'm a big believer that we, we sell time in hospitality. So if something takes six minutes to, to make, we're selling 10 of those an hour. You know, if we can to turn that into three minutes, then we're doubling that. So our productivity is this real important perspective because if we sell more items per hour, our rent's the same and our labor's the same, but we're just having more productivity. So these are things that we don't typically assess or look at, um, but I think that there's a, a real interest now and potentially um, some tech solutions as well. Uh, tech has been huge, I think, within the pandemic leading up to... COVID, what I've sort of experienced in the food tech scene is we've increased our food tech's gone from hundreds of dollars a year to thousands of dollars a year in um, spend, but our profitability hasn't always increased in line with that. So I think being really discerning in what the tech stack is and how much you spend in that space 
and really, I mean, really putting a comb through everything, isn't it? And look at, does, does this serve me? Does this either help me make money or save money? It's interesting you talk about tech because a lot of people are talking about that as a solution, a way to reduce staff costs, a way to, yeah, increase profitability. But do you think that there are some businesses that, the you know, the kinds of tech solutions we're talking about, like whether it's ordering at the table, for example, to reduce staff, do you think there are some businesses that need to look more closely at that than others? 100%. And one of the great failings we've had within hospitality is we, we sort of assume everybody's the same. Um, so that one solution would suit then another another type of business. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. So two restaurants side by side are profoundly different from their skill sets and cuisines to menus to the layouts. Everything about that business is different. So and an example would be, and there'll, there'll be a few, and they're very prominent and um, very uh, recognisable at the moment, some of the, the on the uh, table side ordering. But an example is this this constant narrative that we're increasing average check. Um, from the the, uh, the table side ordering. And my question for that is, how are you measuring the number of covers? So we know we, you know, normal restaurant, you go in, you have a table of four, you go, the waiter goes back to the point of sale and we'll put in four covers. So we'll divide that $100 spend by four people. That doesn't work when you've got one table, you know, the customers are ordering for themselves. They'll just be then look like one transaction because nobody's recording the number of covers. So that can be an example where one, the elevation in um, spend per customer might not be completely representative of what's actually happening. And two, certain restaurants will thrive on that, but other restaurants won't. So certainly a, a properly skilled waiter will always outsell technology. You know, there's just no doubt in, in my mind for that. So in a more nuanced sort of experience-based restaurant, that human interface, that, that co-creation of experience is absolutely profoundly important to that restaurant, less so for QSR. So it's understanding what are we doing in our business and which, which direction are we facing and how are we achieving our profitability and delivering a great experience and making sure all of our decisions point in the same direction. I'm sure there's there's so many hospitality professionals like fist pumping when you say that you know the waiter can do a better job than than an iPad. Um, how can people, I guess you know, staff and managers and owners, like how do how does everyone work together to get the best out of their people? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Um, and for me, we are an industry that that thrives in discretionary effort, and it, it's not something that. If you haven't been part of hospitality or, or familiar with it, you might not understand what that kind of really means. But how, how fast you walk back to the point of sale system, how fast you walk from the pass out to the customers, you know, how, how quickly can you make those drinks? A lot of that comes down to how engaged you are, how, how pumping the environment is, the fact that everybody's working together. The, there's this beauty and the synchronicity of just an experienced team where people are almost, you know, mind readers and just assuming what that next person's going to need and a bar person can pick it all up. It's just, it's like a symphony, you know, it's just beautiful to watch. So I think there's, there always, always needs to be someone within the team that's keeping an eye on bottlenecks. Um, and that can be as simple as a bottle bin. 
you know, a bottle bin behind a bar is too small, gets filled up too quickly, and then it's a massive, you know, either one of the staff have got to run it out and then all of a sudden you've got one person away for five minutes, you know, or the ice being the ice bowl being too small. They can have massive impacts on this flow, you know, where you just want to have your main servers. So you're, the staff that are dealing directly with the customers, they're your revenue generators. You just want to get every bottleneck out of their way and just let them go, let them run. That's so interesting, those little specifics. I mean, I think people are so often in the thick of their businesses and, of course, you know, it's just been it's been so hard to get back up and going, especially somewhere, you know, like Victoria where th- we've just had a lot of shutdown. Um, do you think, I mean, how would you, what do people do to, to notice this? Is it simply a matter of just standing back and watching or is it about, to having more meetings, I mean, empowering people to make these changes themselves. Like what kinds of things do you see happen in businesses that really work? Probably put that into two perspectives. So one um, of my, my career is largely been focused on turning around businesses. It's just been something that sort of landed on my plate. And almost every single time, the answers are always there on the floor. So your staff are the ones, if you can just ask the right questions, they've got the answers. They're the ones that are dealing with it. You know, they're the ones that know all the answers. They, unfortunately, have either made suggestions and they've been ignored or they just don't feel empowered to make the suggestions. Um, And the second instance, similar to that, is when you have new staff coming in or you're coming in back from a break, there are these fresh eyes because you're exactly right. You know, when you come into a new business and you've been there for a month, you just become inured to it. You know, you just don't really notice the things that are a bit of a, a bit of an inconvenience. But those new staff that come in can have, and we tend to, you know, they're annoying, they've got all these suggestions, but those suggestions are absolute gold. You know, that's incredibly important. Um, and a really, you know, an interesting example that I use is if we look at the latte art craze that's sort of gone around. And I'm, a, I'm an old school barista. I was trained to make coffee in Italy in Trieste back in the 90s. We didn't even call us baristas until the 2000s, you know, recognised and uh, fair work. Um, but for me, do we charge more? You know, so as a, as a restaurant or a cafe, do I charge more for putting on latte art? It's generally no, but it takes me longer. So it's actually increased my cost to deliver that coffee to the customer because I'm now doing half as many coffees as I, were, as I was before. So just thinking about what are we trying to achieve? Are we earning more money and what profit is a result of that? And how can we achieve the same thing doing it a different way? So, but you're not saying that someone should put a premium on doing a bit of latte art, are you? No, but at the end of the day, if it increased my cost, so if it takes me an extra two minutes to, and, and all of a sudden I'm only making 30 instead of 45 coffees, and you've noticed, what I've sort of really noticed as a, um, a narrative is all of a sudden we're starting to talk about how all the prices are too cheap, right? That where the baristas now cost us more, you know, they're now the superstars that are costing, I mean, I know some places in Melbourne are $70,000 a year plus for a barista. So they charge more. We're making fewer transactions per hour, so we're earning less money, um, and we can't charge more. So for me, it's from a profitability paradigm. It doesn't really make sense. I suppose, you know, if it means that, I don't know, 25% more people are Instagramming their coffees and you do get a marketing drive out of that, then perhaps you could you could justify it. But I see what you're saying. It's like you've got to work out if it, if it stacks up. That's right. And, and we are very, I mean, there, there's some really interesting fluctuations in the way in which um, transactions behave. So, you know, we're often, especially for restaurants and, and some cafes, a two-day-a-week operation. So even from my experience in seeing some thousand-odd businesses, 
50% of our revenue can happen as li- in as little as 12 to 15 hours of the week, which is just extraordinary. So those two days, Friday and Saturday, 50% of our revenue happening in just five or six hours in each of those two days. So we can't do any more in those times. And that's you know part of where I've had a real concern around um, delivery. So if I can only do 300 meals an hour on a Friday night, but all of a sudden I've got a hundred of those coming in as delivery and they've got a commission of 30%. I've actually lost money. So, cause I can't increase my productivity capacity, but if I could, if, you know, if that gave me a bump on my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then happy days. But of course, as a community, we tend to go to those peak times. It's very, it's easy to, it's, we tend, it's very hard to move people from that sort of normal condition Friday, Friday, Saturday night. And um, then we have QSR cafes. They tend to have a much flatter, um, sort of across the week revenue, but they'll have that 11 to 1, you know, or that 7 to 8 sort of peak time. So the the influences as such can have an impact, but they really need to drive um, custom to our non-peak times because we can't do any extra anyway. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, there's such a... It's such a struggle finding staff and I was part of a Twitter conversation over the weekend, someone who went to a regional area uh, was disappointed that, you know, she was going to visit a a pub on the, I think it was the Sunday night. They ended up closing because they didn't have staff. Um, You know, presumably they just couldn't open and be profitable and so so they didn't open. But then there's this sort of, goodwill aspect to it there's this idea that we're supposed to be traveling to the regions and spending money i mean but then of course restaurants are not a community service i mean it's there's just so much to balance out isn't there and we don't tend to recognize that that hospitality has been shown to be and is in my opinion the most complicated industry to work in it's the most complicated business type to be profitable in because we have very fluctuating revenues but relatively fixed costs. And even when we go to a chef, and I see this all the time, how, how do chefs succeed? You know, we, they're not given cost of goods targets when they write a menu. They're not given productivity targets. They'll just go, go make a menu. And it's almost impossible to achieve the right menu within the context for that business because there's no parameters that have been placed around that. So it's a very, very challenging industry to, to do. And, even before the pandemic, I think the reality was without, you know, so few, um, I think we've had something like one seventh of the amount of apprentices coming through than we did even 10 years ago, you know, a fraction of the apprentices. We've all been struggling to, to hide skilled staff. So that's been something to, to be aware of and the fact that we're possibly moving more to more towards cooks and away from chefs, just as a, something that we've had to do moving forward. Um, but it is, you know, it's not a, it's not a community service, 100%. Um, the demands of customers are very high. Uh, but to me, yeah, that we as an industry have a really good opportunity now to reevaluate how it is that we structure our business. And that comes down to decisions we make before we open the doors, um, things like rent, and then the decisions that we make when we actually open the doors and how it is that we can be profitable. So what kinds of guidance, let's say, on a chef um, who's creating a menu would be helpful? So for me, um, a, a menu is a, is a big thing, you know. So a menu is the strategic vehicle for that business. So it's not something that that's just that we can just do. There, there needs to be a great deal of work and a great deal of cooperation with the, the management, including the chef, as to what those outcomes need to look like. So what, how are we going to position this? What, what are we doing as a, as a business? So where is our, our positioning? What's our strategic imperative? And that's a big question to answer just off the start. 
and then to narrow down from that because where where do we sit you know do we sit in the fast casual mode do we are more towards the the qsr etc um how are we going to serve that food so what is the front of house going to look like? And then that really looks at a residual labour cost that we're then going to have within the kitchen. So on a on a peak Friday night, if you're only going to have four, four chefs in the restaurant, what does the menu need to look like for it to only be those four chefs? You know, so it's, to me, that's I look down, well, okay, if we need to be profitable, we know what our rent is, we know now what our revenue needs to be. If we've got 50% of our revenue in, in 12 to 15 hours, we need to do 300 meals an hour in our peak times. Can we? Can this kitchen produce that? Mm. Are there any menu, like red flags when you look at a menu, when you come in to help a business? Are there any things that stand out to you like, whoa, this looks like trouble? Um, long, long, big menus would be, um, uh, and and ones that aren't aren't um, being changed frequently enough. So, I think th- yeah, often I think is an opportunity within COVID, and something that I've really pushed for in, in the the short to medium term has been dramatically reducing the size of our menus. And and thankfully, um, and I and I believe due to a push from um, RCA Restaurant and Catering, it was just so fantastic to see the delivery. Um, options allow the restaurants to have a different menu for the delivery compared to the menu in-house, which has been incredibly important, and then hence different price points um, to try to cover some of those. So, um, yeah, same menu in both delivery and in-house. Open up to a 1,000 different um, uh, delivery options is probably a bit of a concern for me as well, and and definitely size. You know, we we want to be looking at at most – Sort of typically you're looking at six or seven entrees, no more than 10 mains and six and seven desserts. And then understanding what you are, you know, if, if your restaurant isn't calling away entrees and then calling the mains, then you're just selling mains and sides. You're not selling entrees and mains because if the food's just going to come on out when it comes out, that, you know, so understanding how, what your service style is and what you're trying to achieve and then what the menu needs to look like. And what about when you walk into a business? Um, you know, you've talked about the too small bottle bin and the too small ice bucket. What other kind of red flags do you say from a front of house perspective? Yeah, for even so, for me, it just comes down to them needing. They need to explain to me what I, I need to understand. How are we making money? So, what what type of business are you? And a, a good question for me is if, you know, what's your labour cost and your, your cost of goods? Now, if a restaurant's going to answer to me that it's 30% labour, 30% cost of goods, I can guarantee they're not being as profitable as they can be because I've heard that same um, sort of measure, the KPI measure in London. I've heard it in America. I've heard it in New Zealand and across Australia. Now, there's no possibility that globally we can be sharing the same KPI targets. So what is the right KPI target for that business depends on the cost structure of that business. So typically for me, I actually get right into the back end. I want to really understand what's happening from the finance perspective and what is the opportunity for, for profit and then look at how that, that's overlaid and truly understand, you know, what type of business are you? I had one business where we um, actually decreased their their labour from 32 to 25%, but actually increase their weekly revenue by $15,000 per week, which which wouldn't make sense, right? You think you've got less labour, you'd make less money. But just because it, we reorientated what they were doing, 
And that was just QSR. It was order at the counter and it was based on speed. You know, low prices, high cost of goods, which meant that the labor needs to, needed to be low and based on high table turnovers. So there's these particular ingredients that we need to see. You know, how long are they going to sit at the table? If we're more fine dining, so less table turnovers, it's going to mean a higher average check. So how much beverage are we selling in that instance? So where in the, in the, the service paradigm do we sit? And then what are the, unique aspects of that part of the the paradigm that you're exploiting or or the opportunities that you're missing. Mm. Ivan, you obviously really know your stuff and you mentioned that you, you know, trained in Italy on the coffee machine. Can you give us a bit of a backstory and tell us how you came to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So um, I fell into hospitality. So it was, um, and it, you know, ironically as well, I sort of talked my way into working in a award-winning cafe in, in Auckland to start off with. Um, and I'm from North Queensland, right? So we didn't deliberately drink hot drinks. <laughs> and there, there was no espresso when I was, you know, so I just sort of, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but very, very, one of the smartest businesses I've ever seen. So it was a, a gentleman that was set up um, by a guy named Craig Miller, and he was really the, the grandfather and father of New Zealand coffee. And to me, New Zealand coffee has consistently been about five years ahead of Australian coffee, including Melbourne. So Whoa, fine I know, those big words, <laughs> I know. Um, and, he, you know he, and he designed this cafe. It was so slick. You know, we, we would do, I would have three grinders, um, and I, the reason I had three grinders is the grinders would work so much that the blades would expand and overheat and lock up that I'd need to move to the next grinder. Wow. So, so we, I was doing um, 1,500 coffees a day as a barista, Whoa. just between seven and two. So just rapid, right? Just extreme um, productivity. And from that, that sort of just, and I absolutely loved it. I loved the, the human interaction. I loved the productivity. I've always been attracted to the, the mental side of it, because it's a real puzzle to me, you know, to look at this chaos and how it is that we can make sense of it and restructure it in a way that can, can be more profitable. Um, on the back of that was, you know, fortunate to do well in a barista contest. Um, I had an opportunity to spend three months in Trieste making coffee, uh, which was phenomenal, you know, on an eight group machine, <laughs> just making ridiculous amounts with two baristas. And each, each of the groups had three, had, um, each heads had three pourers on it. So you're oh. making three coffees at a time, just, yeah, scale. That's absolutely crazy. Um, I was then offered an opportunity to work at the Regent, which we were just nearby. So I was exposed then to, you know, Michael James that I worked with. He opened up Wildfire down in Sydney, um, working with Tonchi Ferrick, you know, incredibly high level. Um, I was, you know, lucky to wait with on the Queen when she was there. We did Chogham. So I, I was then exposed to the, the super high-end seven-star restaurant and the hotel and then went out into um, the, the restaurant called Essence, which Michael James went to open in New Zealand. Um, so I worked out in that then as well. So that became the best restaurant in the country. And I've just had this huge thirst to, to learn. And so as soon as I was able to master one environment, I'd move over to the next. And that brought me back to Australia and um, have more or less done the same here, you know, just progressed up through the through the stages and, and just tried to make sense of a, as many different segments as possible. And what's made you now focus on the on the business side of things? Why aren't you actually working in the industry anymore? I am. Um, I broke my neck four years ago. Um, so that that unfortunately means that I can no longer work in my beloved industry. Um, 
that, uh, yeah, I have a permanent spinal cord injury and six screws that hold my neck together. Um, so that, you know, I can't even look down and see my feet. Um, so wow. you're not, not suited to, to hospitality, which has been, um, yeah, that's been quite difficult because it is just what I absolutely adore. So what I've really, you know, what's helped me um, through that as experience is just to try to reorientate. And then I've had so many experts and so many wonderfully knowledgeable people share their, their, their knowledge with me. And I've just wanted to do the same. I've just wanted to give back. And, and that's part of, you know, why I'm now um, pursuing uh, Peso, my own software startup. It's, it's literally about now how can I help businesses be profitable and dealing with them one-on-one from a consulting perspective just isn't achieving the impact that I've wanted to achieve. So um, software is the, the best way that I know to be able to expand that influence as, as quickly as possible. So what is Peso? So Peso is a profit-first software. Um, it's a software that hasn't been seen before in hospitality. So the what Peso does is it makes sense of the business operation um, for the, the venue owner or operator, and then it guides the user on what to do. So Peso will actually tell the venue how much money they've got to spend on purchasing and how much money they've got to spend on their labour on a weekly basis. Sounds like witchcraft, but useful witchcraft. And the thing for me, and I've been held accountable to these things myself. So I wanted, I needed this technology when I was operating businesses because I, you know, I was standing in the middle of a busy restaurant trying to think, well, what, how can I either make money or save money? I'm going to get P&L six weeks from now. I have no means of measuring my productivity or knowing know what's going on. Um, and I, I just desperately needed that myself as an operator. So Peso is, is real time. It produces weekly P&Ls. Um, it's a profit first software. So the venue actually puts in either a percentage of revenue or a dollar amount that they want to earn right at the get-go. And then we can construct, it, it allows, creates those guidelines for the business to construct um, its operation to be successful. Yeah, right. That sounds good. Um, I think so few businesses of, of any sort put profit as the, like the first objective, isn't it? It's, it's always the thing that hopefully is left over at the end. It is. Yeah. I mean, I've known myself and, and even quite large businesses that I've been involved in and run that you, you try to get that 15 or 16% profitability by the end of the calendar year and you're holding your breath to see where you're going to land by the end of the financial year. And that, that's no way, even... Even when, as I mentioned, in terms of you know what are your cost of goods targets, what what should they be? There's you know there's a huge number of rostering platforms that are available in the world, but none of them will tell you what is the right amount of labour to spend on your roster. So we all just kind of make it up, you know, and and then if we know we have an amount, because even for me, service has to exist within a business context. There's no good for us to, and I've seen a lot of this over the last five years. Businesses with fantastic food, great service and great, even seeming quite busy, but they're not making any money. We have to make money. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, well, I guess it's, it sounds like you're sort of reverse engineering, but actually the reverse engineering should be the, should be the template, should be the standard. And then we're an industry driven by passion, you know, and a love of people. It's not, um, we don't typically have that, that boring fascination with numbers and success. Um, and, and I just, I'm, I'm so, I love the industry. I love the people in it. And I just want to be able to, to support them and serve them as, as best I possibly can. Um, and Ivan, you mentioned you broke your neck. That's, those are very dramatic and alarming words. Um, what happened? Well, I had, a, um, I had a very rare bone disease. 
So the ligaments inside of my neck were turning to bone um, without my permission, uh, without my knowledge. So I was operating with a severe spinal cord injury and, and not knowing it. So um, yeah, I was I was rushed into surgery with less than a millimeter of spinal cord. So I was a, I was a trip and a fall away from from dropping dead from a from a severed spinal cord. So the outcome is the same. Um, my experience in a day to day life is exactly the same as if I'd broken my neck. Um, I, it's just much easier to say broke neck than it is to say I had a very 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 rare spine, uh, disease. <laughs> Wow, it's you just don't know what's around the corner. Hey, but what's your sort of daily life like now? How how mobile are you? Um, I'm, I've been very fortunate. I've had a great deal of support, especially from my family, and I'm a very motivated person. So it, it was certainly a lot of dark times. Um, it was very hard to to go from a place where I was very active and very fit to to being dropped into this disabled, you know, body and vessel. Um, I've been. I wasn't expected to be able to walk, but I can, and I'm and I'm far beyond where um, I was expected in terms of rehab. So my my main problem now is I, I live in a very high level of pain. So I live in a in a migraines level of pain all day every day. Wow. Um, but I'm I'm just for me I, I I'm driven by my family and I'm driven by a need to to contribute to my industry and and that that pursuit of peso over those last sort of nearly four years has been an absolute lifesaver quite literally, because it's given me something to do, you know, and helping people and talking to people in the industry um, allows me to not just dwell in pain, really. So my, a lot of, more than half my day would be flat on my back. Um, but it's amazing now due to technology, what we can do through our phones and through our laptops, you know, it's, um, which is just wonderful. Well, it's incredible that you're such a productive person, but also helping so many businesses around the country to be more productive. It's like you've sort of, yeah, you've got your, you've got a disability, but you're amplifying everything that's possible in, in so many different ways. It's, yeah, it's really inspiring. I appreciate that. So I've, I'm determined to make, and it sounds silly, but I'm determined to make what's happened to be to be the best thing that's ever happened to me. So I, I want to achieve more probably and have, have the, the focus to be able to do so than I would have without that. So, um, you know, Peso is now hopefully just a month, six weeks away from market ready and from launch. Um, and, and, you know, LinkedIn where, where I met yourself, Danny, and, and being able to be part of the hospitality community is just an absolute pleasure. So, to, to now being the time where we really need the help the most, you know, I just want to be able to help people the best way I can. Wow, really beautiful. Um, so, Ivan, it's a year since Australia shut down. Um, for me personally, I'm really feeling this anniversary. I'm getting, you know, those reminders that you get on social media about what was happening a year ago, and I'm really, I'm feeling quite emotional. Um, what? What can you say to people who are, you know, in this moment, living this moment, but of course in the thick of their businesses, uh, you know, trying to reclaim lost ground and, and power on? Um, give us, give us some fighting words. I think support is really important. Um, and to I, I, you know, a close friend of mine took his life last week, and oh. I think people wow. just don't reach out, right? I think to supporting each other is just incredibly important because I know quite a few hospitality people that have, all of the weight's just gone onto them. You know, they're just working incredible hours and incredibly hard. So I think for, for as a community that we, we need to be able to look after each other and keep an eye out for each other, I think, which is really important. Um, and, and that we will get there, you know, just to, to simplify life. Your customers love you. The customers want you to be able to succeed and want you to be able to be there. 
So it's, it's, it doesn't, nothing has to be perfect. You know, let's just take a, take a snapshot of what we're trying to achieve. Don't try to do all of it. Just reduce down what you're doing so you know it's something that can be delivered on and, and keep it simple. Um, and we will get there. We will get through this and there will be a huge opportunity on the other side of it. Thank you so much, Ivan. Um, really appreciate all your wisdom and, you know, all the experience you've been able to bring to this conversation, both professionally and personally. It's been really a pleasure to speak to you. And I know that the things that you've said are going to mean a lot to a lot of people. I would just like to say that anyone who's um, feeling like they do need to reach out for extra support, your GP is always a great a great place to start with. But Lifeline Australia is always there on 131114. Um, thank you for guiding us through this anniversary of, of lockdown. Um, Ivan and yeah really wish you all the best with Peso we'll keep an eye on it absolute pleasure it's been a delight to talk with you okay thanks so much this is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about we spend a week thrashing around each issue hearing from different people with unique perspectives we want to hear from you as well If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.